So what the 25,000 thing is about is recognizing how much time we all have, 18,000 days a week, how much time percentage-wise we all spend thinking in those three layers. Hello, I am Joel Ingram, and this is Crisis to Crushing It podcast. Let's dive into this week's talk, and I'll help to increase perspective, expand perception, and allow you to change your reality. Enjoy the show. Ah, there he is. John, how are we doing? Yeah, good, mate. I had last minute technical um, <laughs> glitch. Oh, my God. Let's get me so you can see me. How's that? Yeah. Gonna, let me just try that again with this bottle opener. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. There you go. How you doing? I'm good, mate. You? I'm very well, sir. Thank, um, so, thanks for doing this. And um, sorry for the time that's taken me to get set up. But I had some last minute issues with my internet. And we, uh, it's, it's electronics, mate. That's the way it goes, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, Joel, is it the same as like Billy Joel? Billy Joel, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same, same there's, there's no, there's no Welsh special pronunciation. No, <laughs> well, actually, my my uh, a teacher I used to have when I was in school used to pronounce it. Uh, he'd really pronounce the el bit, be Joel. Ah, that's <laughs> what I was getting. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I don't, I don't go that way with it. <laughs> right, so let's just whistle me through the format and what what it is we're going to do, and I'll do my best for you to make it as good as I can. No worries. So, you know the questions I sent you? I've just I, seen... did, I didn't review them, and I thought probably best not to, because I want to do it off the top of my head. Oh, okay, that's fine. Um, okay, if I bring up some of the points that you mentioned in here, because the, the idea to be in is to give people a shift, at, firstly, to understand who you are mm. and what you're, what you're trying to bring and uh, you know, achieve in life. Yeah. Um, so that's the what's going on in your world right now, bit. And then... Going back to school time, so I want people to be able to relate to you, understand you, you know, empathize. And, okay. and if they can empathize with your story, then they can think, well, if John can do it, why can't I do it? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Um, so I, so that, that one would be going back to stories about school. Um, lessons you learned when you were younger, younger. So again, you know, getting them to understand your story, things, you know, obstacles you overcome. Shit you went through that was a struggle. Um, got it, got it. Yeah. So inspiring messages to people, young and old, of, of, of my journey. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. <laughs> okay, cool. I, I'm going to run an intro on this, on, on the front end of this, so it'll pretty much cut straight into the, the conversation. Um, I always like to check. Are you okay if I post this on YouTube too? But I post it, warts and all. There's no cut. There's no edit. It's just yeah, I'm fine. Uh, is yeah. it okay if I drink my tea while we while we talk? Because it looks more friendly. We drink it together. <laughs> Cheers, Joel. Cheers, man. <laughs> ah, cool. Okay. Uh, and the other thing, we'll head <clears throat> try and keep it to around an hour. Uh, okay. Let me just if if I will say one thing, and I did warn you this when you first met me. I don't know if you if you can remember. Do not let me run on. Because if you do, you do it at both our perils. I'm terrible for it, Joel, and I don't know when it stops. So try and give me a wink or a nod or something, or even just interrupt me. I don't let, do us a favour. I'll stick myself otherwise. All right. Yeah, no worries. No, it's good, though, because uh, I know when we first spoke, it was, it was a lot of passion from yourself. You know, you can tell that you're into it. So Yeah, I am. 
It's, I am, um, and I don't. Let's not get into it now because otherwise you're going to miss. You're going to miss what you want, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, so okay. So can you just briefly introduce yourself to uh, to the audience, please? Hi, Joel. Um, my name's John Godfrey. Um, I live in a small rural village in Norfolk, I, where, where I was born and I grew up, went to school. Um, I've moved many times in my life, but I've ended up back where I started, um, and, and that's about it, really. Cool. Okay. So. For our viewers to understand, or listeners, uh, can you tell us what's going on in your world right now? Do you mean my business world or my or my or my world generally? Um, which one do you feel more inclined to tell about? Um, they're kind of, I guess, they're closely linked. Um, um, privately, I mean, in, in my in my private life, um, I'm happy, stable, and all that that, that sort of so Let's let's go to business, Joel. Um, I've been in business, uh, well, I've worked for myself all my life, so I'm 52 years old. I've been in business um, all my adult life, um, some 30 years now. Um, I've done many different things, um, and what I'm about to embark on is probably the most exciting thing I've, I've come across, um, and it's every day is a challenge, every day is an exciting thing, and also every day there is new stuff to learn. It is a very shifting and ever-moving industry. Yeah, cool. Okay. So would you like to tell us a little bit about what that is? It's to do with cryptocurrency. So you may have heard the mania um, around cryptocurrencies, and a lot of people have heard the word Bitcoin. Um, few people have taken the time to actually understand what they are. Most people think it's internet money. That's a bit dull. It's significantly more than that. If you look around the world, and I'll see if I can explain this. Sometimes I'm not very good at explaining this to a point. Um, okay. If you look around the world at the internet, it, it runs the systems that runs our lives and our worlds. Everything from logistics to medical care um, to storing data like land registries, marriages, all those things. Some of those things have um, value running through their veins. So they might take money to make them happen. So like purchasing land and assets and that type of thing. To try and think about these things as layers of networks. Networks of value moving around the planet. Everything from the bond market all the way down to buying your newspaper from your local shop. All of those things are done digitally in networks. So some of those things, um, like you said about the logistics, makes things happen. Some of those things store information. The things that make things happen, um, if you if you monetize them, and most of them already are, you have, um, depending on how big the networks are, those networks, and this is, I should say, this is no moral judgment on anybody, but those networks have been running for as long as the internet has itself, which has come up to being um, 30 years old. Those networks have a lot of unnecessary, in my view, unnecessary um, um, actors within them. So you could say, that, you know, we could trim out all the fat and make them a lot more efficient. So what cryptocurrencies actually are, there is no coins, clearly, is they're actually codes. So the theory is, that these things will be running on the internet tomorrow. So um, by monetizing, you could look at a big a big a big industry like say uh, and say one that's been long established and running for a long while. Off the top of my head, because there are so many, and I don't spend that much time researching this part of it, because most of my time is dedicated towards the technical um, advancement and development of it all, which I'll talk about in a little while. So we picked a massive industry like say healthcare, which is ripe for disruption. In the UK, we have, um, we are, let's be fair, Joe, we both live in the UK. We are a tiny little island off the coast of Europe. 
our medical healthcare bill is 140 billion pound every year. 140 billion pound. Um, and, I, and I think something like 8% of that money, 8 to 10%, is completely unaccounted for. So if you run a small business, if you're self-employed, if you're a window cleaner, it doesn't matter. At the end of the year, when you go and see your accountant, you do your book work, and you think, oh, right, oh, that much is on food, and this much is on a new ladder, or whatever. You don't have the odd 300 quid or 3,000 pounds that you just can't account for, let alone 8 to 10% of 140 billion pounds. That's because the system that's running within it is just so inefficient. And it goes back to what it was built on. It was built on probably um, armies of people sitting in offices writing out ledgers in paper, in books. And I did this for my, my journey through my own business um, when, when I started using computers um, in the 90s. I'd gone from doing everything in ledgers and I slowly started using spreadsheets and, and development from there. And I would say the process is the same for, for no matter what industry you're in, no matter what level. So going from armies of people writing ledgers out to, to moving into a digital world, in the transition from that, there's been, on, on a, I want to use the word corruption, but not in the sense where there's bad people doing bad things. It's just badly done um, and, and there's slippage and this don't add up to that and that type of thing. As it stands now, we're coming to a critical point, I believe, where all these things are going to start being changed and tokenized and moved over to another way of doing it. And that's where these cryptocurrencies like Bitcoins and others are going to come in. Okay. It's a fascinating subject, one I know very little about. Uh, I've often pondered um, dabbling, but it's, it's, it's a little bit of a... There's so much conflicting and contradicting information out there it's hard to know where to go for a reliable resource you know it is um and there was also something else that you missed out there's a lot of misinformation there's a lot of fake news it is an incredibly difficult thing to get to the bottom of so that you think you've got any sort of understanding i've been at this for five years and i would consider myself a fairly um i'm fairly okay with, with, with the understanding of how money and markets and those type of things all work but this really did get hold of me. My, my fascination, um, if I go back to my early 20s, I started my first company up when I was 25. And being, being um, I should say this, um, I should say this because others it won't make sense. I left school completely illiterate. I didn't learn to read till I was 25 years old. So I was largely ignorant until I, till I started reading. Of course, about the time I started reading was about the time I discovered the internet. So I'm largely self-educated. Having said that, when I've hit a point where I just am following a subject or, or something I want to get better and understand, have a better understanding of, when I've hit a point where I literally think, I just don't get this, I will then look around and find a decent course and a decent way of going paying for education to top up my understanding of the subject, which has been fairly good to me. I must say, I've been doing that for about 25 years now and, and, and that's worked, worked well for me. Um, so, from when I started my first my first company, um, and and moved from from that point, Jill, I've done it again. I've forgotten what I was saying before. Then just remind me the question. Um, so we were just asking. I was saying that it's hard to know where to go for reliable information. You said there's a lot of misinformation. Yes, there is a lot of misinformation. Yes, sorry, sorry, sorry. I do that a lot. Um, <laughs> it's fine, mate. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Um, um, why, why I said that, the, the reliable information part was, yes, so when I started my first company up and not understanding um, about business cycles and markets and this type of thing, 
I thought, um, that's the first thing I'm going to do. I'm going to understand all about um, tax, about how to run businesses. Um, and that kind of led me on a 20, 20 odd year journey into how the mechanics of money work. There's a, there's a book called Modern Money Mechanics, 1950, um, which I think is the foundation of, uh, of, of how the Bank of England works and many other central banks. It is very, very difficult, Jill, to get to when you, when you start searching into these things to get to any reliable layers of information so you can understand how it all works. So one of the things I, I thought, well, you know, I hit a bit of a wall with all that. So I thought, well, why don't I go back as far as I can and find what happens when things go wrong? When things go wrong, how do they go wrong? Why do they go wrong? So I started studying financial disasters. Oh, this is a subject which can, which can really suck you in if you're not careful. It is a fascinating subject. So while I was following that and trying to and trying to piggyback that on to um, my own understanding of business cycles, um, I found I found a thing called Mount Gox. And Mount Gox happened, I think, in about 2012. And it was the first ever crypto exchange. And this is an interesting story itself, how it came about. In the early days of Bitcoins, they were just sort of like enthusiasts and geeks and this sort of stuff. And they were putting all, they were called cypherpunks, and they were putting all the codes together, the, the, second, the second bits and pieces to go on the top of the Bitcoin um, protocol. And one of the guys, he was a young lad, um, he, I can't remember his name, he traded in these cards called Magic the Gathering, which I understand is a little bit like these Pokemon cards. I've never heard of them. But boy, he loves them. Does he? What, yeah. Magic the Gathering? Yeah, yeah. You, you're going to like this story then. <laughs> so he had a website, this lad did, where he was. Um, people could go on there and exchange these cards, kind of like a swap, a swapping platform. I don't know if they paid each other, but whatever. That was there. Um, and then a few years down the road, he, he thought, thought to himself, hold on a minute, he got into Bitcoin. There was no such thing as a Bitcoin exchange. That was just a token that was being swapped amongst enthusiasts. He thought, well, well surely you could, you could use this to exchange Bitcoins. Lo and behold, he was correct. So he set something up on that website to exchange Bitcoins, um, and it became the first ever Bitcoin exchange. Now, wind the clock forward a little bit. That then got bought by a, a man called Mark Capello, um, who lived in Japan. And unfortunately for him, um, I don't think he had a, a great understanding of what he was doing. And he carried on the website as it was built, which was no more than really a toy. You know, it certainly weren't up to the, the sort of stringent protection that a, a financial exchange platform should have. Right. So Mount Gox, classically, someone walked past his password into the exchange and walked out with $450 million. Oh. <laughs> and, you know... When I was reading this, I thought, what? I'd never seen these sort of numbers yeah. in modern day things, you know, and I thought, what? And then I thought, why isn't this all over the news? Why isn't it on every news channel this week, certainly? And, and you know, and there was nothing. And I thought, there's some sort of connection between this whole world uh, or disconnection between this whole world and the world that, that, you know, the media world that we lived in. So that was the first observation I made. Um, and that's what pulled me in, really. You know, from that point onwards, I went sort of down the rabbit hole, as many people say. Um, and I explored all, all the, the coders, the, the backgrounds of them, um, the technology itself, what that was about, you know. Um, and, and when you get to the root of it, it is an incredible thing. Yeah. It, uh, see, those sorts of figures are crazy. Um, can we touch back on one thing you said earlier on? Uh, Going back to when you mentioned about being in school, um, not school, um, 
when you were struggling to learn or whatever, you come to a point where you would look around for a reputable course. Yeah. Was, was that from a desire just to to learn more or was it – go on. It, it's, a kind of, it's kind of both. Um, it's a recognition of your own limitations. Um, and it's also experience telling me that if, if I want to start a subject from nothing and I want to learn it, I, I'm old enough now, and I kind of guess I knew this when I was young as well, to look at that and think, oh, this is going to take me forever, right? And so <laughs> you, you, you go on it. And there is nothing – I don't think there's anything any human can do. I mean, yes, you can, you can, you can change your diet slightly, your sleeping habits. You can get a discipline. You can do this, that, and the other. But the way we upload information into our own brains is a very personal thing. Um, sometimes for me, it can be, it's, it's because, because I'm severely dyslexic. I have, um, some learning issues as I just now demonstrated. One of those things uh, I'm severely dyslexic is, is my short term memory. So if you now told me your phone number and said, or, or said, meet me here in this pub, whatever, sort of, sort of, sort of, I'd look at your face <laughs> and I would instantly forget. You know, so I constantly, if I something like that, I'd pick my phone up and write it down straight away. So okay. sometimes when I'm explaining a point, I will often do that as well because of my short-term memory. I'll often wander off and forget what I'm talking about. Um, I have um, an issue with ADHD as well um, and, and a slight one with OCD, which is not really a problem. But they all kind of make, make my learning issues a, a challenge. So sometimes when I'm er- trying to learn a particular topic like this one, mm. um I'll be brutally honest. What I what I do is with the technical stuff. I'll get an audio book yeah. and I will just play it on a loop, and until I practically know it, parrot fashion. Uh, okay. And then the, the technical parts to it that that I don't understand, I will then go away and research independently and do the same with that. Yeah. So I have a broad knowledge of a lot of subjects, um, and that's kind of how I have to do my learning process. And once you've done it. Um, on a subject, I guess, if you can master one subject and master it really well, and I don't think that really matters what it is, whether, you know, anything, you know, I'm, I'm also good. I'm not, I come from an engineering background and construction. Um, I'm a passionate builder. I like building anything. I don't really mind whether that's a business, a house, uh, a motorbike, a website, you know, I like construction and that's all construction to me. I like the way you break that down because, I mean, um, sometimes when we imagine the change or the thing that we're trying to achieve, we tend to go into the future a bit and we tend to wrap it up into a giant ball of effort. Yeah. Like, like my, use my mother as an example. So she's got bad knees and she needs to drop a bit of weight. So I said, why don't we, I'll come up every night. I said, I'll walk you around the block, which is literally, I don't know, 500 yards. And she immediately turned around and said to me, um, well, what, what do you expect me to do? Blah, blah, blah. What do you want me to do? Run a marathon? I said, no, it's 500 yards. But in her head, that effort equaled yeah. a marathon. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So imagine the story she's running in her head. And, and Go on. I was going to say, you've touched upon a very good point there because that's another discipline that I, have to, I, I had um, developed in my own learning thing is um, – Say you have a task, for, the, for example, this morning, I, my, my tax return, my son, who is sort of looming off over there somewhere near our office, my son is also my accountant, um, and I've got four days to get my, get my tax return done. I know I should do it, and in my head, I've been thinking about it all week and every night, I've been going to sleep, thinking, oh, the thing with the, the, the problem with doing that to yourself um, is if you 
overthink. And when I say overthink, I don't mean overthink the detail of it, but think about it often, like, like you go through the sequence of what you need to do it. If you keep doing that, in your head, you're telling yourself that you've done it. Do you see what I mean? Right. And you make the likelihood of you actually getting around to doing it less likely. So it's an incredible discipline from my own perspective. And, and it is a thing with, with, the, um, with the OCD, I guess. Overthinking and overrunning these tasks, it's an absolute discipline to be able to stop doing that, uh, start with a list, write the things down, put them in some sort of order and, and go from there. And that comes in cycles. Sometimes um, I'm incredibly busy with lots and lots of different projects. Um, sometimes sometimes I'm not, and I sort of take the foot the gas and ease back a bit. Um, but overthinking can, can actually lead to procrastination. Oh, neat, yeah. It's, and I'm uh, the worst for it. Yeah, no, it's not. I'm, a, see, I'm an engineering background as well. It's, uh, really? What sort of engineering, Joel? Aircraft. <laughs> really? That's interesting. So uh, it seems to go hand in... I, I, I abhor double handling. So if I, you know, I'm going to do something twice, I'll think about oh. it long and hard before I have yeah. to do it. So I yeah. know that the double handling has gone. Yeah. Or That's a big job. thing in construction as well, particularly if you've started um, it literally in construction. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a time served carpenter from, from a, lot, a long way back. Um, and during that time, you know, I've worked for my father-in-law, who's a master builder, an incredible man. I have enormous respect for him. A whole generation of people who are the next generation up from me who are now in their 80s, yeah. all that knowledge, a wealth of knowledge, they're like encyclopedias, is locked up inside them. And that's going to go with them. So yeah. unless you spend the time and learn from them, you're never going to learn this from a book or from the internet or anything, man, all this sort of thing. Yeah. Fant- fantastic people. Um, but one thing I learned from them about double handling was what I was laboring for. You know, if you've got to pick concrete blocks up and move them two or three times, and, and one of them times was your own fault, <laughs> you soon learn, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you touched on a, another brilliant point is you, you were saying about um, having the story in your head and, and running it through, running it through. If you keep running that story through and, and the action is or the circle is not completed, Although you're, although you're taking it to con- completion in your head, the, this physically is not completed. So this is, yeah. I, I mean, this is, it's, it's a great perspective you've just shared because with me, when I, if I keep running something and running and I don't complete physically complete, it can lead to a sense of overwhelm. Yeah. Because, because the loop is still open. It's not closed. Hmm. No. But, and then, yeah, I, I completely relate to that, and then and then that thing starts swelling up. More of a sudden, that you and I always say this to um to my wife. Um, you start to feel like that man. And there's an old black and white picture. I don't know if you have ever seen it. Like the man peeling the potatoes with the mountain behind him. <laughs> you oh start yeah, to feel like that. Yeah. I have seen that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you do. You make a mountain because yeah, yeah. yeah, that story's continually running. But and that's the way out of that overwhelm, like exactly like you just said, you get it out of your head and you get it on paper. Yeah, I think is. the other thing about that is going back to what I said about the mountain. I think I said this to someone recently, a friend of my, a friend, a family friend who's gone through. A, she's a young girl, she's gone through a tough time with diets, and you know, young people do. And I said, in the end, you know, you've just said to me, this is a really, really big thing to you. And I said, in the end, and I've, I've conquered a few things that have, have been a real struggle for me in my life. But in the end, when you do, you know, like learning to read at 25 years old was a monumental task. And I had to force myself. I really didn't want to do it. And sitting in, in, a, in a college at 25 years old, 
mostly ignorant, but with a degree of intelligence, reading Janet and John books was really difficult, you know. Um, but, I, but my reading is okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, I can, I can kind of do it. I prefer the audiobooks. It's not a comfortable experience. But what I said to it, in the end, even Count, even conquering Mount Everest was a very small step because it was the last step. You know, that last step before you actually achieve it yeah. is, is, is the most easy part of the whole thing, isn't it? Absolutely. It's all the effort getting there. It's, it's, I mean, half the time, it's so, starting. Starting yeah. the iceberg. Yeah. So if you focus on that last step, that's the one that's going to get you over the line in my head and yeah. get the task done. No, it's a good. That's a good perspective to share, John. It's uh, and 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 in in a sense, that's what I do with my coaching. Is you, you take people to that future point where yeah. they've achieved. Do you know what I mean? So they get to yeah. feel the the, the yeah. joy and the exhilaration. Like, and I think I think about achievement. Uh, someone very wise taught me this. Um, I've had I've had I've, I had a lot of luck around about the time I, I went through the education thing and learned to read. Um, I was one of the first people to ever go through the Prince's Trust in the UK. And at the time, um, because I came from a, a background of, um, well, some might say disadvantage, but I, I wouldn't see it like that myself. Um, there was so much money being sloshed around by banks and big corporates who all wanted to be involved with it. I was really fortunate. And I got the benefit of, of all that. Um, and they, they helped a lot which was really good that's cool we're going to divert a little bit um you sort of touched on it earlier on could you tell us a little bit more about them um, about your school and the stories that come to mind um <laughs> uh i have a fairly uh, i have some uh, i think we're a humorous one because most of them are fairly well not really inspiring i think that i think what school taught me um, very little, in fact. I mean, I, I had a very tough experience um, at a very young age. I was I left school one day and was bundled into a car by two adults, taken away, and put in children and put in a children's home. No one explained to me why. I was there for three and a half years, and it was horrible. Um, I've never met my father. I, I was separated from my mother then. Um, thankfully, I, you know that, that I, I wasn't. That weren't for the rest of my life. Three and a half years later, I was. Um, reunited with her so i was moved 13 times before i was 12 um and during that journey a lot of the time i was stopping and starting in new and fresh schools so what the journey taught me very quickly and this was through the 70s really um and and i should say that during the 70s um ritual beating of children in every school i went in was pretty much the norm you know I, I, <laughs> so that's kind of the darker side to it. But what I learned from that was a very quick ability to, to people read, you know, is this person, and I haven't got any brothers or sisters, so I, I literally brought myself up, really. I had to learn very quickly whether this person was a friend or a foe, you know, um, and I, I didn't realise that until quite late on in life, how how important that was to my young life. Um, but what I will say was, along that journey, I met some other children um, who were great friends and I've bonded with them and stayed friends with them all my life. Even my own wife was someone who the last move I made was back to the village I live in. My own wife was a girl that I used to meet on the crossroads to walk to school with. Um, yeah. And we've been together 37 years. So the one thing I have always managed to do is every time I've been airdropped, which is a Bitcoin phrase, every time I've been airdropped into a new environment, I've managed to seek out the nicer people and, and the more, the better friends, I guess. And they've been life friends. And 
they're still with me now. That's that's a cool story, John. I like that. <laughs> Thank I you know, very like much. That. Cool, man. It's, it's, see, see you, you, the fact that you were, could be, maybe because you weren't uh, at, at the uh, educational skills of the time. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I would have said to, to um, again, this is no moral judgment. I don't have, harbor any grudge towards people. I went through some terrible physical abuse as a child. Um, I don't hold any grudge towards anyone for that because, you, you know, that, it can't define who you are. You can carry that stuff around with you forever and it doesn't do you any good. No. Um, what? <laughs> I've done it again. Yeah. Sorry. Do it again. What were we just saying before that? Um, so basically you were discussing that you were saying when you were a kid um, and, and, I, and I mentioned to you that it's good how you turn from being not so educationally capable. And yes, sorry. Into- I beg your pardon. Sorry, Joel. Um, yes, yeah, so and what I was going to say was with the learning issues that I had as well, I would have looked, um, you know, back then we were called all sorts of names. I mean, for, for the la- later part of my um, um, high school education, I was in a set, there was, there was a population boom when I was born. So as we went through school, um, that bubble of people had to be catered for. So in our school, there was mobile classrooms all over the field. So there were seven groups for every class. Um, depending on how smart you were, you were in close to the top. Well, I was, um, I think in group two for maths. I've always been good at maths. Um, but what hung me down was I couldn't read to, to, to understand the questions. So they, they used to say I was lazy. There, there was no recognition of dyslexia in any way, shape or form. We had a, we had a class, like I say, seven classes for everything, but we had a class called the remedial class. They were the remedials. Yeah. We were called the remarkables. And <laughs> what they would do, we even had our own bus, which is not a cliche. We even had our own bus. And towards the end of my high school education, they used to just pile us in the bus and just take us out for the day. And I was pretty cool with that, really. I didn't, I, I didn't enjoy it, um, and one bit of it, really. So, yeah. So what I was going to say was, um, my son is pretty much the same as I was, and and fortunately for him, we're his parents, and through his younger life, I, I kind of saw myself from another set of eyes growing up. I was just like him. Um, he didn't speak until he was, oh, I don't know, maybe four years old. At least okay. he, he wouldn't. He wouldn't even say a word. We took him to um, um, to get help to get speech therapy. I'm like I say, he's a very intelligent young man now, a very bright and intelligent young man. But just that that one thing held him back as a young child. Um, he got lots of help, and clearly, you know, now that's benefited him. That didn't happen to me. So, and to be fair, when you're told when you're when you're screened at by every adult um who who should be looking after you and looking out for your interest and told that you're retarded and all these horrible words it kind of self it, it, it is very hard you know when you're a little in a core think yourself well no i'm not mm. and you know you're not but you don't know why you know you know you're not so actually i'll, I'll tell you this the, the breaking point for me was i had very little um other loves growing up um you know, I didn't have any family or anything other than other than my mum when she came back into my life. But one thing I did have an absolute passion for was motorbikes. Um, and and back in the end of the seventies and through the eighties, around where, where, where we live, the only motorbikes that that you know there was the the British bike industry was then had had its day. 
they didn't bother developing and keeping up with everything and they were sort of on the way out on the slide. So the Japanese um, market had sort of jumped in with these big four-cylinder muscle bikes, which were absolutely, and to this day, just the most stunning things you've ever seen, the best noises you've ever heard. And I fell completely in love with them. So when we used to go around all the villages and towns where we live, everyone has a village hall and this sort of thing. So, you know, even today, this has been going on forever. Young people go with the next village to their disco or their party and so on. So when everyone was doing that, I would be sitting in the car park, drooling all over all the motorbikes. While everyone else was inside dancing and trying to pull a girl, I was just thinking, look at this, look at this. And the one I fell in love with was called a Z1, a Kawasaki Z1. Still today, probably the most beautiful thing ever built. <laughs> and so I used to sit there and say to myself, if I had one of these, this is how mine would look. And I would look at it, and I'd sit there, and I'd look at the frames. I knew that these, I knew these things back to front, even as a very young teenager. I knew that the back brakes were like a hair trigger thing. If you breathed on them, the, the wheels would lock. I knew the front brakes had a single disc on. If you pulled that in with both hands, nothing would happen. <laughs> so there were some intrinsic problems. And towards the um, launch of the Z1, there was a big competition between Honda and Kawasaki to get the force first four-cylinder. 750 um, engine out to compete with the Bonneville, the Triumph Bonneville and the Norton Commander. Well, Honda beat Kawasaki to the production line um, with the KO 750, beautiful bike. And Kawasaki decided at the last minute to make their their 750 with inadequate brakes into a 900. Um, and the engine to this date is still one of the most powerful grunt engines ever built. And the, pro the other problem that I had was between the front sprocket and the back wheel, when you really pour, pour the power on, the chain would pull the two points together so the bike would flex in the middle. So going around corners and that sort of stuff was really, really exciting. <laughs> so I, I kind of knew all the stories in the back of my head. I knew the inefficiencies of the engine and how you could beef the engines up. So when I was 17, after being told I was stupid, retarded, I'd end up in prison, and all these other things, um, I thought, do you know what? I can't repeat what I thought. <laughs> um, I'm now going into my shed, and I'm going to get my spanners out, and I'm going to build a Z1. And I did. Um, when I turned, and I started that when I was 17, from scratch, with no help from anyone. Um, when I'd finished building the engine, I, I did, well, I say no help from anyone, some specialist help. I did. I had the crank balanced, um, lightened and balanced and welded. Um, bored out to a 1200, gas load the head, smooth bore carbs, lumpy cams. I dialed them in myself. Um, Harris 4 into 1, 35,000 bolt coils. By the time I was 21, that was a normally aspirated engine that would do 0 to 60 in two and a half seconds and a quarter of a mile with me on it at 10 and a half. Just a bit then. So to get any lower than that, You'd be looking at turbos and, you know, running on other sort of juice. So I kind of did that to, um, it was a big, big healing process for me because I kind of did that to prove to myself and the world and sort of stick my finger up to the world and just said, look, I'm not stupid. Yeah. Stop, stop calling me a retard. <laughs> yeah. No, I get it, Johnny. I get it. It's, uh, do you, when you, you, you reach that point of change and you've had enough, the obstacles that you hit on that path, once you'd made that decision, 
Mm. How did you view those obstacles? Well, this is the one. This is the the, the, the um. This is the one thing my um. I don't want. I don't want to bash my mum. You know, I don't want. To, I don't want to. She did the best for me, but you know, I had a, a fairly rough upbringing, and um. The one thing I've always been told, or was always been hammered into me as a child, no matter who it was telling me, just do it. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Just that we're not interested. Just do it. So I never had, you could, you could almost say, you know, having no father and having no one around me to guide me saying, Oh, you can't do that. I never had that. Do you see what I mean? So, so, the, sense, so the sense of obstacles is something I've still never really gathered. <laughs> I, I don't, if, if awesome. I think to myself, yeah, I don't have that, you know, I really don't. And I've tried to, I've tried to inspire other people that I think, you know, when I done my, my my first business course, this guy said to me, we "We're in a room, and this this man, I should say, Roy Vaughan, Roy Vaughan, changed the course of my life." Um, we sat in this room, and he was my business mentor for about three and a half years. And some of the people in this room were starting businesses from fresh. I was kind of, but I've been kind of working for myself. I mean, mine was more about understanding book work and how to manage the business part of my life. That's why I was there, not to actually have a business because I've been working for myself like from 13 sort of thing um, so a quote that he said which I think nails this perfectly if you are in and I'll say this to anyone inspiring to start their own business and have a go if you are in a stable job getting paid every week XYZ and you're covering your bills that's fantastic right if you leave that job to go and have a go at um, a business and start yourself up d- doing that sort of thing you're going to feel like the floor's been pulled from underneath you, understandably. But as Roy said, so is the ceiling. Yeah, I like it. Do you know what? I'm so glad you said that story because that, that, that wasn't, I don't think that's on any of our discussion notes. <laughs> but that's so timely for me right now. That's true. Um, that's true. Absolutely true, Joel. It's, uh, I'll I, I tell you if I may. So I've, I've shifted jobs. Please. Uh, so I'm, I'm, uh, I've gone from being aircraft engineer shop floor on the tools yep. Yep. to a salary role. Um, so the overtime's gone, the shift has gone. Is it? Is a dramatic the floor? The, the floor as well and truly disappeared. And the 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 uh, awareness of the implications of that have come flooding on today. Mm. So, but I like I I love that because that just that's re-inspiring. Thank, thank, well, you, thank you, John. While we're, while we're inspiring, if you like that, George, do you want me to tell you something else to inspire you then? Yes, please do. If I can. <laughs> um, just let me get a pen. Give me a second. Hold on. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of on the thread of what we're just talking about. And it's certainly worth sharing with you, I promise you. You'll be disappointed. So this is something else I kind of learned from Roy, yeah? Um, so it's not mine, I'll, I'll, so I won't claim to it. But you should like this. Right, ready? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to show you something. That's a number, right? And you're going to say whether you think this is a big or a small number. There is no right or wrong answer. That's like the kind of glass is half full or half empty. There is none of that. There is no right or wrong answer. So you have to just say, is that a big or a small number. This is a big number. Right. Interesting. So 25,000 
I'll see if I can do this in one sentence without losing my track. So 25,000 is the days you get in an average life. Okay. You're going to spend probably 7,000 of that asleep. So okay. now you're actually down to only being awake for 18,000 days. Yeah? Yeah. So then you go down to, and I'm very paraphrasing this because that took a couple of days for him to explain it. Um, then you go down to the time you spend actively thinking of anything, you know, and this sort of the way you explain it, there's sort of kind of three layers to it. There's the background thinking where you're almost on autopilot, where you get out of bed in the morning and the next thing you're sitting down for your tea thinking, well, where the hell did the day go? Yeah. And it's just gone. Yeah. There's the other type, type of thinking where you're doing your methodical, logical stuff where you're thinking, maybe you're driving. I can be as, I can be as mundane as like driving to work to what we're going to tea at night. Oh, I've got to stop at Sainsbury's, get the chip and get this. And you're sort of putting, you're planning stuff together, yeah? Or it can be complex where you're, you know, building a house or something. Those kind of logical things. But the things you need to focus on are the light bulb moments. Those light bulb moments where you think, hold on a minute. And you have that epiphany moment. Now, it doesn't have to be the reinvention of the wheel or building a new iPhone. All of these things, no matter how great they, how small they are, they are still great to you. If that's something you've been working on, as we said earlier on, and you hit that point where you think, king, and you think, this is it. I've got the solution. That's a light bulb moment. So what the 25,000 thing is about is recognizing how much time we all have, 18,000 days awake, how much time percentage-wise we all spend thinking in those three layers. And increasing the likelihood of your light bulb moments. Because unlike the other two, you can't be, you can't just sit there. If you want to have an inspirational idea, and, and there are people, I do know this, who get paid to sit there with a piece of paper and a pen. They get paid to sit there and let their head bleed. So they just think of ideas. They're paid thinkers, you know, and they are very creative people. But other than that, normal mortals like us, and certainly me, I have a lot of those things, a lot of those things, and because I've done this all my life. But what I find is they, they come to me like dreams where I'll think, you know, I'll, I'll go a long while, maybe months, and, and they're sort of, you know, it's all sort of bobbing along. And all of a sudden, a lot of the stuff I'm working on will start to come together in floods of little light bulb moments. Now, those things only happen if you understand how your brain processes thoughts. Now, what he said to me, and I'm no psychologist, so I'm not saying this is 100% right, but this is what he said to me. Your subconscious, in a lot of ways, is, is dumb. It's kind of like the processor on a computer. It just processes your thoughts and your ideas. Right? So if you um, read something, um, whether that's true or, or, or not true, your mind's going to be processing that away, and you're going to be going with the store. And however you, we all do that individually. However you're all doing that, you're kind of like analysing it and, and, and taking it all in. If you then um, become, say, stressed, and you become overwhelmed with this topic or a subject, or stuck in that loop we mentioned earlier on, your subconscious will be whirring away, just reprocessing the same information endlessly, and you decrease the likelihood of your light bulb moments. Okay. So what the, what the 25,000 thing is about is, is lowering the time you spend um, doing that and increasing the likelihood, like harvesting, harvesting your light bulb moments. Um, and that's the answer. 
on a deeper level, um, the one thing that can help you with this is is meditation, because taking control of your own subconscious so that you're not doing that is a can be a challenging thing, particularly if anyone out there has had any sort of mental illness where you, where you get stress and even bereavement, all that sort of stuff. All that interrupts the flow of this and kind of getting back to it and rebooting it. Um, some people really struggle with it. Some people, unfortunately, never do it. But meditation is the, is the answer for it. I would say as a tip, if anyone wants to adopt this um, as, a, as a method, if you like, keep away. Once you understand how strong this actually is, then you have to have you have to take absolute responsibility for what you feed your subconscious. So if you're going to feed your subconscious things like slasher films, if you sit in front of the news every night, if you read a newspaper every day, what you're doing is you're uploading all that data into your head. Your sub, and that's what your subconscious is going to process. So once you understand that, you think, well, hold on now. Right, so I'm building a business. Here is my target market. And then you go through all the things and you just, you just, just reboot the way that you, the way you look at it. Dude, awesome. So thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. My name is Joel Ingram, and I am a certified NLP coach. I help passionate, resourceful, and professional people feel stuck and unfulfilled with aspects of life to rewrite their narrative and chronicle a new, engaging, and captivating future. Please subscribe if you found benefit.